0: I'm your host today, Yadong Li, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University. So the anthropology of development raises co-anthropological questions about human similarity and difference, the issue of modernity, and the terms of globalization and localization. Professor Daniel Richman's new book, Progress in the Balance, Mythologies of Development in Santos, Brazil, shows the recent anthropological effort to explore this topic, So this fascinating new book is published by Cornell University Press this year. And thank you for coming, Professor Richman.
1: Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking.
0: It is my pleasure to have this opportunity. So Professor Richman is a professor in Anthropology at the University of Rochester. His research interests focus on the anthropology of development and the anthropology of economic process and globalization especially in Latin America, and more specifically in Honduras and Brazil. So basically, New Books Network has a tradition of starting the interview from something about the guest. So, Professor Richmond, then could you please give us some information about your academic background and what brought you to Latin America from Honduras to Santos Brazil? And what brought you to this topic of progress?
1: Sure. Sure. Um- So my first, um, experience in Latin America was as a high school student. I was a exchange student in a small, um, town, a rural town in Argentina, uh, when I was 16 years old. And that was my first experience traveling out of the United States. I got extremely interested in, I knew no Spanish at the time. And, uh, it really lit a fire for me for wanting to learn the language and then to learn and absorb as much as I could about, um. Latin American cultures in general. I was a, as an undergraduate, I was a double major in anthropology and Spanish. Um, then I went after working in business for a little bit, I went to graduate school at Cornell and knowing that I wanted to, to work in Latin America on something having to do with globalization. Um, to make a long story short, I connected with some people at Cornell's agriculture school and got very interested in, um, in Honduras, particularly how the country was responding to a huge hurricane that had hit there in uh, late 1998, Hurricane Mitch. Uh, at this time, this was about the year 2000. Uh, and then, so I, I, my PhD was completely focused in addition to sort of general classes on, on social and cultural theory on Latin America regionally. Uh, I ended up doing my first fieldwork project was looking at a village in Honduras that was transforming in the midst of a transformation from a coffee growing economy to an economy based on immigration to the United States. And so I, I did a kind of anthrop, a study of globalization based on a sort of traditional village level ethnography. I lived in a community and, and talked to people about how um, migration was changing their lives, their family structure, their politics, their economics, their religion. And my first, so my first research was a kind of holistic village ethnography of migration based in Honduras. Uh, that was my PhD dissertation. It became my first book. In the course of that work, um, I became very interested in the global coffee industry and how it was changing. And for my second project, I I I, I recognized the kind of what I saw as a gap in how anthropologists had studied coffee in Latin America. So much of it was framed on a kind of small scale village level producer struggling to find a, a, a livelihood in this um, global economy, and yet the largest coffee producer in the world is Brazil, and there coffee producers were very large agribusinesses and very few anthropologists had studied Brazilian coffee. And I decided that I had studied, I had learned Portuguese in graduate school and always had in the back of my mind working in Brazil. And by that point I had tenure and I was able to take a risk and embark on a new kind of fieldwork. And I thought that Santos, which is the most important coffee port in the world, would be a really fascinating place to try to understand the global coffee economy from the top down. So you know, in anthropology, there's there was a trend towards studying up, that is studying powerful people, studying elites to understand global systems. But very few people had done that when it came to commodities in Latin America, particularly coffee. So I saw my project as kind of like studying up in the world of agriculture, which was kind of unusual since so much anthropology had been done through a kind of dependency theory Marxist lens where coffee producers were seen as exploited, um, you know, small scale people at the mercy of these um Cruel uh, global capitalist forces. And so that was kind of how I came to this second project.
0: That's fantastic. Um, you know, I'm always enjoying listening to the anthropologist journey, you know, to switch progress. And I can definitely say, you know, the connection between your coffee project and your project on development and progress. So basically, about the book, when reading this book, I can notice that. Multiple methods and strategies and various types of material are uh, used in this work. So basically, I think this is first of all a book based on extensive historical archives, but simultaneously it can be seen as being based on interviews, participant observation, and you know, a lot a lot of bus trips <laughs> you mentioned in your book. So could you please let us know how you write this book and what is the biggest methodological challenge for you when writing this work?
1: It's a great question, Yadong. Thank you. Um, so this was a challenging, uh, pr- challenging uh, project to do fieldwork wise for me. Um, as I write about this in the book, that you know, having most of my experience in anthropology was formed around working in a small town or village, where it was quite easy uh, to talk to people. If I wanted to understand a phenomenon, whether it was political or religious or whatever, it was basically a matter of of, of, of talking to people. There wasn't a lot of there, there weren't archival sources about the community. I'm talking about Honduras now uh, there weren't many you know existing ethnographies. Now, when it comes to Brazilian coffee, it's an incredibly well studied topic going back hundreds of years and the city of Santos has over you know it has over a million people. It's right in the core of, of Brazil. There are universities there, there are museums. So I realized pretty quickly that I needed to really combine ethnography with other kinds of sources. And there are so many texts available to understand cultural phenomena. I think I was very open-minded about what kinds of things I use, whether it was newspapers, museums, movies. Uh, you know, historical archives, et cetera. So I worked in uh, the the Santos um, Chamber of Commerce has a, has a very good, extensive archive that I used. There's a museum of coffee that has an archive that I use. There are there were people in the coffee industry that I met through connections that I would interview. Um, there, this was not participant observation. I had a few you know chances to go and visit. Um, coffee importers or exporters, but it's not like I was, you know, working on a, you know, working in within the industry. So this was really a kind of myth mixed methods project. Um, and I think you see that in in the book that the book kind of tracks back and forth between the present and the past and, and deals quite a bit with the disjunctures between how people narrate or commemorate the past and what's going on in the present. Um, just as a kind of personal note, I think I learned that I really enjoy that I enjoyed the experience of doing um, small-scale village ethnography. Probably more, I think that a lot of anthropologists um, who haven't had that experience might not recognize some of the strengths of it. Um, so I've gl- I'm glad that over the course of my career now, I've been kind of on both ends of the methodological spectrum from rural to urban, from small to s- small village to big city, to et cetera.
0: Thank you for your answer. I think, yeah, the fragmentary model of doing field work is you know, more and more common in today's anthropology. And I think your book particularly provide a very you know, exemplary work for this model. So let's talk about the book itself. So about the structure of the book, it is framed thematically rather than chronologically, as we can see, like, as you said, uh, you know, it's transferred from past to present and to present to the past. So from different aspects or topics, you review the clash or play between different visions of progress in Brazil. And you know, in each chapter, we can see you have different entry points. So it's a very intriguing structure. We will start from the chapter one. So the chapter one, you introduce a keyword of the whole book called Bantaronte. It is a key word because when people in Brazil imagine or practice progress, they will be influenced and their actions are shaped by this myth. So could you please provide our audience with more information about this particular, particularly important myth? And could you please explain why this myth is so crucial for us to understand the issue of progress and development in Brazil?
1: Yeah, so uh, the Benderantes are colonial explorers who... Uh, in, who set out from the coasts of Sao Paulo into the interior of Brazil, uh, looking for riches, looking for gold and diamonds, and capturing uh, uh, indigenous people as uh, as slaves, basically. And we're talking now about uh, the 1600s and the 1500s as well. 1500s, actually. And the um, for Brazilians, the myth, the story of the Banderantes, I guess is a very commonly known national mythology, probably similar to the pioneers uh, in in the United States. That comparison has been made a lot, or the conquistadors in Spanish America. They're seen as kind of the founding, the patriarchs of the nation. And so many modern uh, groups choose to associate themselves with the Benderantes, whether it's people that are uh, developing farmland in the Amazon, or people that are, you know, entrepreneurs who are trying to embark on some kind of big uh, construction project, building a dam or a highway. Uh, even I, I mentioned in the book that, you know, the, the, the fast food chain Subway was identified as a bender on this uh, restaurant chain, because it was spreading and growing so fast. Around the country, and so I basically refer to the Bandurante's narrative as as a chronotope, a particular chronotope of progress, and that's a term that I take from the uh, literary theorist, theorist Bakhtin. It's a, it's a way of kind of talking about about a framing concept of, of transformations over time and space. I guess meta narrative is a good word that gives a shape or a, det- a predetermined plot. Uh, to to social change, and so the first chapter is kind of looks at the iconography of the bandeirantes and Santos, and, and Santos was the city from which the f- earliest and most famous bandeirantes in Brazil set out to 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 kind of settle or conquer the the interior of the country, and so that iconography is found uh, almost everywhere. It's 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 very obvious. It doesn't take a PhD in anthropology to see it. Um, but, um, but I think what I started to really notice was just how many multiple different uh, um, sequences of events could become framed or, 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 or encapsulated in this one narrative. And so that first chapter is really kind of looking at about all the, all the work that, that that story does Uh, in contemporary life.
0: So, Professor Richman, uh, you are a coffee expert and from Honduras to Brazil. Coffee has always been a keen focus in your ethnographic work. So in Chapter 2, you demonstrate how coffee plays a role in the past, present, and imagined future in Brazil. So basically, my question is, what makes coffee as a commercial plant and as a commodity so special? And in particular, how can it help us understand issue of progress and development.
1: So coffee is the commodity that launched Brazil into modernity. In the middle of the 19th century, Brazil produced 80% of all of the world's coffee. And almost all of that was shipped through the port of Santos. If you look in any mainstream Brazilian history textbook, you will see a chapter on the cycle of coffee. And during that period, coffee was the icon of progress. In order to become a wealthy developed country at that period, Brazilians wanted to export, grow and export as much coffee as they could. And a small elite became fabulously wealthy. And much of that wealth was centered in and around the Port of Santos. Now, starting after the Great Depression, a lot of Brazilian economists started to change their tune and they realized that beca- being dependent on growing crops that were s- exported to North America and Europe uh, was, had stunted the, the, the development and modernization in the country. And this was the origin of dependency theory. So growing coffee stopped being... Uh, seen as a sign of progress, and instead became a sign of kind of neo-colonial backwardness. So, what had been the symbol of modernity transformed to the symbol of backwardness. And so, no longer did you want to grow coffee; you wanted to have factories, steel mills, uh, electrical plants, heavy industry. So, I would think of it as if the coffee, uh, if the coffee pl- uh, farm was the icon of nineteenth-century progress then something like the steel, uh, the the oil refinery, the steel mill was the icon of 20th century progress. That's what economic uh, independence looked like. And so that transformation is a really important part of chapter two. But then the third kind of transformation that I talk about is somewhere around the turn of the 21st century, um, being a member of the global consumer class became the main narrative of progress. So having a country that pe- where people were consuming the same commodities that they would find in New York City or Miami or whatever became the new kind of goal. And so transforming Santos from a place where goods were produced to a place where white-collar consumers could go and enjoy you know, uh, the nice uh, nightlife and coffee shops and things like that became the new model of progress. And so the third stage is kind of like if becoming a a coffee a Starbucks consumer, let's say, rather than a Starbucks grower became a new way of thinking about progress. The irony of all of this is that Brazil still is the most important coffee producing country in the world. And so at the same time, you have this 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 mythology that Brazil is becoming a first world power that you know where agriculture no longer is important, so much of that wealth and that that uh, development was being driven by primary export production. It was just invisible in Brazilian cities. And that's tied, of course, to the rise of China as a consumer country, the need to produce commodities like soy, uh, you know, like sugar, like beef, all these primary commodities that were driven, uh, where the growth in Brazil was driven by rising demand in Asia. That was really fueling the the, the economic boom that Brazil went through in the, in the 2010s. Yet, it was kind of from the perspective of Santos, this place where there's this huge industrial port was kind of if if not invisible, it was kind of submerged within this broader narrative that Brazil was no longer a agricultural country.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because Professor Richman, um, I can see coffee is embedded both in Brazil local history but also in the pro pro you know process of globalization. It's very impressive. So, about the chapter three about the port itself. So, in this chapter, you describe the transformation of the Santos port, and you particularly put your focus on a port neighborhood, the Valongon. So, although gentrification program process is actually not uncommon, especially in today's global south, such as you know in cities like Shanghai, in Mumbai, but you perfectly illustrate that there are some special points about the transformation of the Santos port. And for me, I think the most important thing is the Santos port is one of the most important industrial ports for Brazilian economy. But at the same time, I think this port you know, as an industrial district, it has been imagined as a hysterical relic by the Brazil public, Brazilian public. So in other words, the port as an industrial area and the post-industrial downtown actually coexist and clash with each other. So, but, you know, rather than having a, I think, a linear sequence. So could you please, please, could you please explain how this happens and what valuable information does it reveal?
1: Right. Um, so your point about gen- gentrification is important. You know, there have been many um, ethnographies about urban gentrification, particularly in Brazil. Um, one of the ones that I think is most connected to my work is this, a book called Revolt of the Saints by John Collins. And he writes about a neighborhood in the city of Salvador where people, he argues that people in the process of gentrification come to occupy kind of two timeframes at once. They're present, uh, and also they're viewed as kind of living archives of the past. And so once culture becomes objectified as something that needs to be protected, people are kind of living in in this dual reality of needing to become representative of a historic past, but also a present. And, you know, one thing that I saw in the port of velango was this um almost a, a a a fetish to um gentrify but it was one that was not really successful that is to say the dream or the model of gentrification was clashing against this reality where um ports are blue collar workplaces and in order to have a functioning economy you need a very strong uh, industrial port. And Santos couldn't really transform the port neighborhood into a place of kind of white collar production and leisure uh, without cutting itself off or making the port invisible. And so what that chapter is about are these moments where the um the reality of the export economy comes up against the fantasy of leaving the export economy in the past. And so you know one of the big examples I talk about is the conflict over traffic where the truckers, there's a constant problem in the Brazilian economy is poor uh, infrastructure, port infrastructure and the, the long period of time that it takes to ship goods from the interior to the coast. And so what that means is there's like incredible amount of traffic, um, on very bad old roads. And the truckers were protesting, because they had no place to park and no place to wait. Um, and the city didn't want the truckers there, they thought you're ruining the quality of life. You know, people are complaining about the noise, etc. And and the, the the pollution. But the truckers were necessary for the functioning of the economy. And so that kind of episodes like that became kind of ethnographic moments to talk about these two clashing understandings, class projects, really, around progress. And so I think you can see, from what I've said, a kind of Marxist, general Marxist perspective in the ethnography, which is that in each case, I'm looking at kind of the material conditions of production, but then also the stories that people tell about the productive process themselves. And so if you think sort of like the essence of Marxism is kind of like the relationship between Material and ideal worlds, and how they can kind of misrepresent how how the the mirror can become a dispo- uh, the the mirror of ideology can distort the underlying processes. That chapter, I think, is probably the most Marxist in that sense. That it's really about like the 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 disjunctures between the material processes and the stories that people are telling themselves about their world.
0: I think it's fantastic. I think. This chapter perfectly revealed that pe- sometimes and always, I think, people's imagination and desire towards development and progress actually go ahead of what the reality is like. And I think I can definitely see the similar thing in other places in the global source. So about the chapter five, it is a chapter around the mythology around Pele and the Pele Museum. And this is my favorite chapter, actually. Uh, So in this chapter, you focus on the Pele Museum in Santos. So the life trajectory of Pele, I think, presented an ideal imagery of Brazil progress. But actually, the, the failure of the... Palley Museum revealed another side of the Brazilian progress. So, like you said, like you mentioned in your book, the reality beneath the surface was shoddily viewed and unstable. So, this is the unstable foundation of the of, of the progress dream in Brazil. So, here we can clearly, clearly see that the clash between the ideal and the reality of Brazilian modernity and progress is on full display in this you know, not so big museum, I think it's a fantastic chapter with very powerful arguments. So around the mythology of Pele and the failure of the Pele Museum, is there anything you would like to let our audience know? Because I believe there must be much more interesting things about this museum because, you know, we cannot know because this museum has already closed.
1: Um, I I need to update the book. It, It has actually reopened. Uh, at the time that I've... It, oh, really? It,
0: it, Fantastic. Has, it,
1: it has reopened. So if, if you want to go see uh, the Pelé Museum, you can. But let me let me just backtrack a bit. You know, if you, if you, can, rewind his, if you can rewind back to about 2016, um, this was kind of a high point. Well, it was... P- people thought it would be a kind of celebration of Brazilian progress. It was we had that brazil had hosted the world cup and then hosted the Rio olympics in in 2016 and the um the government had had invested huge sums of money in infrastructure in outward facing spectacular developments that would kind of impress a global audience and this you know you can this is very similar to what happened in china i think uh, in the run-up to the beijing olympics and I, i know there's a recent Book about that uh, by uh, anthropologist Ellen Oxfeld. Anthropologist has written about that. Anyway, okay. um. so Santos, the city of Santos, was is sort of the spiritual, in some ways, the spiritual home of Brazilian soccer. One of the most famous clubs is based there. Pele played there. Neymar played there. A lot of the most famous Brazilian soccer heroes, you know, got their start in Santos, and. I think most people in the region really wanted it to be one of the host cities for the World Cup. And a lot of the um, tourist development, the development of the downtown was a, pl- a strategy to to, to 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 become a host city. And part of that was making this Pele Museum into a place where tourists could go, you know, making the city into a home for soccer tourism. And so Pele, you know, they, they spent a huge sum of money redeveloping an old mansion, uh, to build a beautiful museum, uh, to Pele's life, which really, I argue in the book, was essentially a, a, like a temple of Brazil's mythology of progress, where at the first level, it tells the story of this country boy, you know, who, it's the hero's journey. He's a country boy, he's discovered. Then in the second story, he moves to the city, he becomes famous in the city. Then in the third story of the, of the, of the museum, he becomes famous nationally. Then he wins a World Cup he becomes internationally famous and then you get to the top and it's Pele with, you know, the King, uh, the, the queen of England with Mikhail Gorbachev, with, you know, visa advertisements, he becomes this global consumer icon. And I think it was done intentionally. I don't think this, I mean, I think that was the narrative that they wanted to put in the exhibits, but I I basically analyze that as a kind of encapsulation of a certain story of Brazilian progress that, you know, came crumbling down because just before the 2016 World Cup was held, there were massive protests against the government. The president was impeached. Um, there were people protesting the World Cup and the team itself lost in very humiliating fashion. Uh, and so the whole what was supposed to be this great, triu- this great triumph is kind of remembered as sort of an embarrassing moment. Or at least a moment of really radical change and so that's that's the story that i'm telling at the end there and i mean i think i say in the book i feel personally like what else can i say about pele like there's he's the one of the most famous athlete probably the most famous athlete in the in in history right and and i'm not a huge soccer fan and so i'm coming at this as an anthropologist trying to uh, trying to do a symbolic analysis of of a text in social space and doing a kind of political economy driven analysis of this place and so I love sports but I'm sure there are moments in it where I'm like where people would be like you know I got something wrong about pele so that was the one you know that was kind of like the one concern I had I'm glad that you liked the chapter because it I think it does really show um it illustrates the new the chronotope of progress that I'm trying to unravel at the end of the book. And so, you know, it was, it was important to be in there, but I was a little bit nervous about it.
0: Thank you, Professor Rickmer. So as a, as a football fan, as an anthropology student and as a reader of your fantastic book, I'm really happy to know that the museum now it's reopened, and it definitely should be my destination in Brazil, basically. So let's talk about the theoretical part of your book, and I think is the maybe the most important thing. So although taking various specific form of, forms of expression "progress" in Brazil, um, you know, I think the word "progress" in Brazil has a formal, stable, aesthetic or narrative dimension as you want to show in your book. So this dimension is crucial because I want to quote the last sentence of your book because I think it's really capture your key argument. So the stories that people use to express these hopes for the future will ultimately determine whether they are realized in one form or another. So to understand the specific events about progress in a given society, maybe it's Brazil, maybe it's China, maybe it's Vietnam, so different places, Anthropologists need to look for the net narrative of progress in this society. I think this is what you maybe you want to express. So could you elaborate a bit more on this theory and explain the importance of this theory, this perspective for understanding the issue of progress and development in today's world?
1: Yeah, I, I, in my opinion, that is the most important contribution that I make in the book. You know, if you ask someone on the street, what's progress, they'll say, it's when things get better, right? They'll say, maybe it's, you know, less crime, people make more money, they're, they're more healthy, they're safer, whatever. And that's fine. But most anthropologists would say, well, who defines better? That's obviously a cultural judgment. uh, That's a value judgment. Exactly. And so, you know, anthropologists are very, um, rightly, very, hesitant about coming up with some kind of universal definition of progress. And so you really, you know, when I was, um, started to study the field, I think the dominant way of thinking was essentially a critical Foucaultian perspective on development and progress, which came from people like Arturo Escobar or, or James Ferguson. You know, these were works that basically deconstructed notions of development as reflections of, uh, systems of power and domination. Uh, Akhil Gupta would be another person post-colonial developments. And, you know, that work was really important, but it didn't really, um, there was something kind of unsatisfying about it, which was that, um, there are real commonalities in terms of, uh, but well, what the term progress means cross-culturally, right? There's always kind of a forward, hopeful, future-oriented dimension. There's some kind of transformation in the society that's usually um, kind of enclosed by a particular imagination of who the nation is or who the participants in this project are. And so what I wanted to do was kind of bridge the gap between the kind of common sense idea that progress means things getting better and then the super critical idea that, Progress is just a reflection of uh, the ideas of the powerful. And so that's where I kind of started to focus on form, on, on this notion of form. Um, what is it? How do people formalize this series of transformations, right? And so I mentioned China, you know, China, you hear people talk about the great rejuvenation, a kind of re-progress a, a re, a as a, a reinvigoration of a, of a, of a glorious past, Brazilian progress, I say, is very future oriented. It's premised on this expansion from uh, an outward expansion from the city to the country, the domination of nature. So the Bandeirantes narrative becomes the kind of dominant way, not the only way, but the dominant way of imagining progress. And I think what I what I'd like more anthropologists to, I think, do is kind of focus on 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 the formal how the formalizations of progress affect political decisions that is the way you imagine this story or plot playing out historically will affect the decisions that you make as a society right and 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 at one thing just one final thing about that is that i mentioned in the book that you know this is a very fundamental question in social sciences in fact max Weber you know in 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 one of his most famous essays in methodology of the social sciences uses the notion of progress to talk about value neutrality and he asks the question is it possible to have an objective value neutral definition of progress and he says no it's not well the only way is if you define it very very minimally as technological progress but other than that when it comes to social political moral ethical progress there's no objective definition And that's okay, but what I also... I mean, I'm not saying Max Weber is wrong, but what I'm trying to say is that there are these kind of formal similarities from place to place that we can focus on and analyze to really understand the concept.
0: Thank you so much. I think it's indeed very insightful for us to think about how people, you know, talk about and how people imagine and materialize progress and development in different society. Actually, they they indeed have some models or some meta-narratives. So let's back to the book title. So I think it's very interesting because after reading the whole book, you describe a series of clashes between different timescapes. But after reading the book, I just realized that the book is called Progress in the Balance. So I think it's really interesting and I'm very curious about how can we understand balance here?
1: Yeah, uh, excellent question. And I'm glad you picked up on the, the meaning of the title. So one of the other major themes in the book, theoretically, uh, comes from the anthropology of Brazil. And it comes from this idea, essentially, f- that's from um, Dumont that has to do with um, hierarchical uh, opposition and the argument it has been made for many for decades that brazil is essentially um a dual a a, a dualistic society uh this is an argument that comes from dumont through an brazilian anthropologist roberto Damata, and it's the idea that applying western understandings protestant understandings of kind of uh, one nation under God with one future, with one system of morality and justice, with one culture um, doesn't apply to Brazil where there are, because of the colonial history, um, there's a kind of more dualistic attitude. And so Damata's argument is that progress in a dualistic society isn't so much about people, classes coming together, to, to you know, t- t- unity in the kind of North American sense, but instead a system of balanced opposition. That coordination between let's say rich and poor, white and black, urban, rural, balancing these uh, competing interest groups and class interests is going to be more realistic than kind of overcoming social contradictions and creating a sort of utopian glorious future. And so, the title is saying, "Well, can you have progress in a fractured, divided society? Can you have a unifying myth?" And ultimately, my answer is probably not. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not a utopian book. My perspective is not utopian. It's about um, recognizing social conflict and clashes and not saying here's a recipe that we can follow to overcome them let's just identify them and see how they play out in life and so that's so progress in the balance is also about how can you think about progress in a dualistic society
0: it's amazing it just let me it just let me rethink that actually social theories they also have their imagination and desire of a society, of a utopia. It's like some balanced idea. It's just like what Brazilian people, like farmers, like normal citizens, they imagine the concept of a balance, basically. So thank you so much for giving us this explanation about the book title. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what's next? What is your next project? while you still focus on Brazil, or follow coffee elsewhere?
1: So, my plan right now is at some point to return to the same village in Honduras that I wrote my first book about. And it's also going to be a book about development and progress, but it's going to be broadly about people that have returned to their home village from the United States, um, and perceive certain aspects of life there as better uh, than what they were experiencing in the US. And so, again, it's about the clash between kind of fantasies or dreams and realities. Because, you know, in many respects, living as a retired person in an objectively poor country, if you have a little bit of money, is better than living as a retired undocumented immigrant in the united states and so as we now have you know generations of people that came here in their in their 30s and are now entering their 70s and are no longer able to work in 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 manual labor in the u.s there some are returning home many are not but it's looking at kind of their perspectives on the pros and cons of life in honduras versus the united states
0: Thank you so much for sharing with us your, you know, your new project. I think it sounds amazing. And we look forward to having you back once you finish it. So, Professor Rickman, thank you so much again for coming today.
1: Thank you, Yadong, and thank you for taking the time to, to read the book and to ask such um, interesting questions. I appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure. So today we discuss the new book by Professor Daniel Rickman, Pro- "Progress in the Balance: Mythologies of Development in Santos, Brazil," pressed by Cornell University Press. I think any audience interested in anthropology of Brazil as well as development studies will be inspired by this new book. So thank you for listening to New Books Network Anthropology Channel, and we will see you next time.